Our God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen, he doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with treats. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whisperers. Listening to the world famous God Whispers, I'm Craig Dinofredo. And I am Bill Swerlug. Oh, there it is. The Swami. The the Dalai Lama of Lutheranism. (laughs) I I believe there's a recording of you that's going around the internet right now. Do you you have that available? I think I think I do. Hang on. I have it's on YouTube. The one on YouTube, right? <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yes. Let's, let's, you, you have a large audience. And they let's, really let's, eat it up. This is one of my finer moments. Yes. It's only sitting as me and you. These two only is talking to each other. Understand, I can only talk to me and give my understanding. I cannot talk to anybody else and give my understanding. So the me resides in this as me, is residing in all of that as me, so that me, it's all about this me. me, talking to me. The crowd, Deep. The crowd loved it. Uh, that's Deep, a, man. That's, that, that's all I can say, is, is that the, the crowd absolutely <laughs> loved it. Well, you, I, I think just you cut it. Oh, I knew that to was going to happen. Time church started tomorrow to see what time they have to get up. Well, let's What's see what happens uh, here. Did, did you know that Google, like churches, have Google reviews? Yeah, I can't stop. I can't stop Is looking this Chris? at it. So don't you love this? John Airbnb? Chris, it's very good. Such like a Chip and Joe vibe in here. I love this ship lap. Just kidding. <laughs> anyway, I feel like I do like a considerable amount of roasting of church and Christian culture and things like that. But honestly, sometimes church needs to be defended because these reviews. I'm already mad. <laughs> All right, I'm going to show you some of these. I'm going to try to. Sc- this guy kills me. He's, you know him. You just went right for that. I've never heard of him before. John oh, Chris. Are you kidding me? No, I don't. I don't know. Oh my gosh. He's. We we need to get him on the show. <laughs> really? We, yeah. He's he's a Christian comedian, and he just oh. he just slaughters the church. He just swa- slaughters <laughs> evangelical. I mean, just that. <laughs> Pious Southern kind of, you know, oh gosh. He's so he's, he's slamming the Google reviews of churches, which I've always thought was really, really bizarre. I, you know, I like to rate them on the crispness of their wafers, personally. <laughs> <laughs> me, it's only sitting as me and you. These two only is talking to each other. Understand, I can only talk to me. And give my understanding. Yeah. I cannot talk to anybody else and give my understanding. I feel that way sometimes. <laughs> so the me resides in this as me. Uh-huh. Is residing in all of that as me. Mm-hmm. It so is about that me. Me through this me talking to me. And the crowd goes nuts. Yes. That, that, and and that's the part I like about it the most is they go absolutely nuts. What's amazing is this is exactly what I feel like I'm hearing when you talk. It's, <laughs> I, I have no idea what you're saying. Well, I, and I just, he, hence the gong. It just, see, I mean, it's the whole vibe, isn't it? I am the Dalai Lama of Lutheranism. My mind is a raging torrent flooded with rivulets of thought cascading into a waterfall of creative alternatives. <laughs> what is that? Where does that come from? Blazing saddles, my oh, friend. Is that blazed really? Yes. Yes. Oh, it's time to it's time to view that movie <laughs> once again, isn't I, it? I think it's still on Netflix in all of its non-PC glory. You know, I I know that sooner or later I'm going to have to download it or buy it or something because the PC police are going to want to oh, yeah. ban yeah, that you... like they want to ban Tom Sawyer. You know, it's just not well, not happening. Like Disney's Song of the South, my, my brother got a bootleg copy from Japan because right. you can't get it in America anymore. That's right. you got to turn to Chinese bootleg. Uh-oh. just to Did get I just turn my stuff. brother in? Oh, Uh-oh. no, they don't know uh, his name. 
Okay, that, okay. that would be uh, Guido, my <laughs> brother Guido. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's we it. Know, we, we know. You know, I, I sympathize with the Swami there because, because yeah, quite frankly, Craig, sometimes I say things not even I understand. This is true, and, and I think one of the greatest statements you ever made on this program <laughs> is that you're smarter than me because you contradict yourself. Oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, walking, was, I'm a walking self-contradiction. That was one of the, I think, one of the most profound things that you've ever said, and I still have no idea what it means. I don't believe in coherence <laughs> of thought. I, I really don't. I, I, and, and in fact, I, I think that's why I so readily em, embrace Christianity and especially sort of the Lutheran perspective on it is that it's paradoxical. So you can just like, you can just be a walking contradiction and, and sound profound at the same time. So I, I, I've never been, I've never been big on coherent thinking. Denny Craig. <laughs> and the older I get, the worse it gets too. I've you know, Paula and I have been watching that, that show, um, um, Oh, with with uh, Shatner and, and oh, Terry Bradshaw. Terry Bra yeah. The, why am going, I drawing a blank all of a sudden? Because you're of old. That that's why you're an old guy. You're losing. Um, uh, never too late. Is that what it's called? I think. Something I like think that? It's, it's where they travel and with. They, they, travel they got a the young world, handler, George, Foreman, George Foreman, and Fonzie. Yeah. And Henry Winkler. And, right. Bradshaw Shatner and Shatner's and, like the he's like the savvy traveler. He knows everything. I am about convinced. Everything. That this, you are Shatner in twenty years, and I am Terry Bradshaw in twenty. You years. You know, we should do that. We'll 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 travel the world in twenty years. You and Paula, Karen, and me, we'll go around, and maybe we'll get some other old person too. We'll, we'll talk about get, our prostate. Get Rudy <laughs> every, <laughs> in every country. Get Rudy. Oh, Rudy would be awesome. <laughs> and and we'll we'll just go travel. We'll just just travel. Just do stuff. Do inappropriate things all over the world. And but, I can pontificate. I can I can spout nonsense. And oh, but, it'd be but, great. Shatner is he 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 a he he knows a lot of stuff. He does, he's actually a very smart but, guy. But he's also very clear about being full of BS because he needs to be seen as smart by these guys. And Bradshaw will do anything to embarrass Shatner and Bradshaw's always in a Hawaiian shirt. So I'm just convinced that this is us in 20 years. Bradshaw's Bradshaw's like a mischievous kid. I love Bradshaw. You know, he gets that look in his eye, like, "What can I, I do to embarrass everybody else?" Or, or he he has one of these aw shucks moments. You know, he's just like totally overwhelmed by the experience. And and Shatner's cool. It's like, yeah, I've been there before. I know all about. This. Yeah, but you know what? They all and and I think we turn into this as we get older. We all get a little teary teary eyed very easily. We do. Know, and, and, oh, uh, we do. I, I'm much more emotional today than I ever was. Yeah, and that's I not was, saying a lot, but, but I am. I was watching the video of the pre. Presentation of the of the uh, uh, fest shrift for uh, Jim Nestingen. Oh yeah, and and there's not a dry eye in the place. I mean, and you know, and it's well all guys like Rosenblatt and others, and and it's just all all just weepy and and lovely and and it's just it's it's wonderful. They had, they had a fest really shrift for for Jim Nestingen. Yeah, yeah, the latest fifteen seven seventeen. Oh, shaded. I should I should look at that. You know, I saw the still of that, but I never I I, I didn't tune it. Nestigan is one of the happiest, most joyful, fun Lutherans I've ever met. Well, that's that's what I I always told Jim when I'd see him. I'd say, "You're like a Lutheran, but you're happy." <laughs> <laughs> I remember he spoke at Doxology, and and I mm. went to his breakout at Doxology, and he was talking about marriage, and it was so funny. Y you know, Nestigan's in the room. When just peals of laughter are coming right. through the walls, I mean everybody is laughing. And a lot of times it's just his laughter. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and and the cool thing about Jim too is that he it's it's laughter at our common human experience. He's not making fun of others. He's no, not putting no. others down. Uh, and boy, I tell you, he was kind of I think he was Gerhard Forty's kind of watchdog. I I, I think he kind of. He was real close to, to Forty. And, oh, they were very close, yeah. But I think he kind of watched to make sure, because Forty, Forty was the, the, the big intellect and the thinker. But I think, I think Jim just kind of made sure that his friend wasn't going to stray too far off the reservation. You know? and, and that's the kind of guy he is. He's, he's the kind of guy who's going to watch out for his friend. He's he's a very loving man, and uh, the gospel just oozes from him in yeah. so many ways. I mean, he's he's been through a lot, also. But well, you know, you know that that makes it's a, it's a gracious kind of existence that he seems to put forth. That makes me think about something too. And since you mentioned Jim, especially Jim, um, 
it's this, this idea, that I, was, I was reading, you know, there's a new uh, version of the Galatians, Luther's Galatians commentary out. Uh, 1517 puts it out. I forgot who did the translation, but it's a new, fresh translation of the the 1535 commentary mm-hmm. of uh, Luther on Galatians. Probably his one of certainly Luther thought it was one of his best works, and it is. That this is this is really great. I yeah, think it's both must, Romans and Galatians are both fantastic. Now Romans isn't so good in my opinion. I loved it. Do you? Yeah. yeah. No, I don't because I mean it's this is like that's very Augustinian Luther. It is. It is. But there there are a lot of really good gospel nuggets. But in it, that you volume. know, for example, if you ever want to get the proper understanding of the semel, and and what it means to live in that, shall I say it, paradoxical tension of being sinner and saint, uh, fifteen thirty five Luther Galatians commentary, the the discussion on Galatians chapter five. Mm. is just magnificent. I mean, that's breakthrough. And this is this is Luther really kind of, this is very polished, seasoned. It's been worked through in the pulpit. It's been worked through in the classroom. It's been worked through in writing. We even have the rough draft in 1519, right? And uh, so it's a great commentary. But what got me thinking is I was paging through it and looking at Galatians chapter 5 where Paul contrasts the work of works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And and it I had one of those moments where I'm thinking, you know, when people look at us, what do they see? Do they see more of the work of the flesh, you know, the dissensions, party spirit, anger, strife, immorality, drunkenness, whatever? Or do they see the fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-discipline. And then I think of guys like Jim Nestigan. And I mean, mm. he—he's—it's like he's a walking uh, tree of the fruit of the spirit. Mm. And you know, he's been kicked in the shins. You yeah. know, it, it, the institutional church, you know, went after him. There's a reason he's not in the ELCA anymore. Right. Right. And and this man continues to exude love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Um, to me, that's the mark of a free man in Christ. The, the, and it, no, it was, was kind of challenging. To me, it's kind of challenging. A guy like that reminds me that when the world looks in and listens in, they take note of, of what, what sort of tree is bearing what kind of fruit, you know? Yeah, I, I will say also that he didn't just take it laying down either. I mean, he, 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 he fought for the, the, what was right. And and he he didn't just uh, you know take it in the shorts and walk away. No. So you know God bless him for for uh, having that fortitude also. Well, in, in ways in in different, but yeah. but along the same line, the man that influenced me the most, Doctor Norman Nagel, was the same way. I knew his critics, and I knew what they were saying about him, and he knew what they were saying about him. Mm-hmm. Never ever said anything against them. No. Now, you know, uh, he could get colorful about, you know, really bad ideas or bad theology, and especially if it denied the gospel or shaved the gospel down. And I've seen students get skewered at, uh, at protocol time, but that's but that, <laughs> right. for pedagogical purposes only, right? I've seen him do it in good nature, and uh, for example, he had a exegetical professor that they didn't really agree on, on certain things. I won't <laughs> no. say who, uh, but had him come in to lecture the class on a topic that we were talking about. I think it was in the Holy Ministry class, if I remember right. And uh, so, anyway, this other professor came in, and and so Nagel said, "Well, you've heard what I've been talking about. Now we're going to hear it straight from the horse's mouth." And then he looked at him and said, "Or is it the other end?" <laughs> Yeah, well, it is, it is it is a weakness of. But that was that was all in good nature. And you know, fun. yeah, and, you yeah know, with the gleam in his eye. And that other prof gives as well as takes. So I'll, I'll tell you know. though, you, you if if anybody knew and understood deeply the modern hermeneutics and semiotics, Nagel did. He knew he mm. he knew them all. He read mm. he read them all. He understood. You know. You know, he read Jacques Derrida. He know he knew what he was saying. Oh um, my goodness! And yes. so, so yeah. Uh, but and so when he makes a comment like that, it's very, very well informed. But there is a weakness. Uh, dogmaticians and exegetes never get along. 
No. They never no. get along. And it's really kind of a struggle for who's the player and who's the referee, you see. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> dogmaticians think that they're playing the game, but they're not. Um, the exegetes play the game. The exegetes are the ones kind of wrestling with the text because theology is about text. Uh, the dogmaticians are the referees to flag you when you've gone out of bounds. That's all. <laughs> but, but there's a, kind of a struggle for control over who gets the last word, the exegete or the dogmatician. And uh, in our circles, uh, the Missouri Synod uh, is very fond of dogmatics. Uh, we do that really well. Exegesis, eh, not quite so well. We're very, well, I, you know, we're uncomfortable with hermeneutics. We're uncomfortable with uh, looking at the text as a text. We we we're, we're more comfortable with how the doctrinal bits and pieces fit together. That's our forte. That's our strength. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment. And uh, but one of the things that I notice about Norman Nagel is I think he was also quite an excellent exegete as well as dogmatician. I, I would put him in the category of a dogmatic exegete. In other words, he was he was uh, pulling from the text what was dogmatically useful. He was also a great mm. preacher. Um, yeah. And and that's where I I think actually Dr. Nagel's exegesis really came to the fore in the pulpit. Because he had a sensitivity to the nuances of the text and would just zero in on them, the, what he would call the clincher. And uh, we, we haven't had a good Nagel uh, sermon. Now we need to GW revive for a while. We need to revive this. I'll never forget. I'll never forget Dr. Nagel's advice of how to approach a text as a preacher. And that is, he would say, look for the Jesus the text delivers. Mm. And then secondarily, look to see what gets in the way of the delivery. So it's kind of a gospel law uh, way of looking at things. Look for what the Jesus is the text delivers, and then look for what is getting in the way, because that's where the law comes into play. The law clears right. the way. It, 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 it gets the obstacles out of the way. That was one of the most helpful things that I ever heard in, in four years of seminary and uh, homiletical training. That little paradigm right there has served me really, really well. Well, and I picked up the same thing from him on that is, is, you know, when you pick up the text, where's Jesus mm -hmm. and, and, uh, how is he being delivered here? Uh, you know, since we're, we're talking about these men who have influenced us as pastors, I mean, people like Jim Nesting and that I know, I don't know him as well as others, but you know, I, I just find him to be delightful and, and his approach to life is one that I'd like to have as a pastor from what I see. Uh, Norman Nagel, who certainly has had a profound effect on both of us. And uh, we recently have lost a great voice uh, for pastors in Eugene Peterson. Oh, yeah. Uh, who, who, who died just, uh, what, a week ago? Well, speaking of kind and gentle souls, uh, Eugene Peterson... He's kind of like a quiet version of Jim Nestigan. <laughs> you know, if if Jim weren't so loud and so happy, um, I, right. I think I think Peterson was more contemplative. He called himself a Protestant monastic, and yeah. uh, and and he was that. Uh, but yeah, he died. I, this, I, he died this past week, and and I I have to admit. Uh, there was there was kind of a, a one of those senior teary moments. There, there was a moment of of a farewell to somebody I I really wish I had the chance to meet. I, I really wanted to do like a Bono visit. Like remember when Bono mm. went to visit him at the, right. at the cabin and Peterson's wife baked chocolate chip cookies. I, I, I noticed you, you you picked that out. I posted that on a, on a group that so we're on, on Facebook and and you you noticed. That Peterson's wife is baking cookies for ba Bono. Bono is Bono coming. coming. I need to make cookies. Chocolate chip cookies. It's, <laughs> it's that's a beautiful moment. But, it is. But it I, really I is. would have loved. I would have loved to have just sat and had a cup of coffee with him, um, overlooking the lake. You know, in Montana. What a great place to retire. Uh, you yeah. know, he, he inspires me about retirement. Uh, you know, I would love to have a study library like that with a, uh, you know, wood. Uh, wood uh, walls and and books and and a uh, study desk overlooking a mountain lake. It's like, oh yeah, bring mm. that on. That that's that's yeah. that's beautiful. But he was a, a true contemplative in many ways. I think he right. he uh, enjoyed reading. 
Uh, he was a prolific writer. If you look up his bibliography, uh, that man oh, over wrote, thirty books, uh, thirty-five books, yeah. something like that, yeah. and uh, very popular. Was not a celebrity pastor by any stretch. You know, this is this is something that's interesting. I don't think he ever served a large congregation. No, no, uh, he but, served but, Christ the King in Bel Air, Maryland, right. thirty right, years. Yeah. He was he was there thirty years. He began as a mission plant pastor. He tells a funny story about how he used to have to file mission reports, and he wondered whether anybody in the presbytery read them. And so he and his wife would start making up stories about how things aren't going so well, drinking a little bit more than I used to, uh, starting to spend time with the secretary. I'm kind of and he just kept, they, were, they, they basically created this serial disaster, and nobody from Synodical headquarters ever said anything. And, and oh, then I guess funny. finally it came to a head. He was sitting with his mission board at some big, you know how the head shed always has these big imposing conference tables of important sure. people. And, and, and he basically started reading this to them. And he, and he looked up. He says, do you guys ever read these? Yeah. <laughs> As beautiful. Yeah, that's a joke, son. Don't you get it? <laughs> But you know, it's it's funny as we're talking about this, and we we were talking about Jim Nesting, and 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 I I really just realized they're the same person. They're they're two sides of the same coin. Jim is the extroverted one, and and Peterson is the introverted. You one. got it. That's that's it exactly. And, and, but they're the same coin. It's they're, just two sides. They're E and I of each other. Yeah. These these are twin. <laughs> these are twin sons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's it's right. He's the contempt. Peterson is the contemplative. And um, just, you know, I don't like to use this word often, but spiritual comes to mind. This is mm. a deeply spiritual man. Something I, I'm not. Sometimes I tell people I'm religious but not spiritual, <laughs> just to confuse them. But, you know, it's it really is that way. Uh, to me, spirituality is kind of a forced thing. It's hard. Uh, it seemed to flow naturally uh, from Peterson, although I, I only know him as the implied author through the books that he wrote. You know, mm. you, only, you only know an author unless you meet him or you know him personally. You only know right. them uh, through the text, and that's the author you fabricate in your head. He, he gets into this in A Long Obedience uh, in the same direction. Is that what it's called? Something like yes. that. Yes. And uh, he, he talks about how uh, in, in our flesh we don't want to worship God. We don't want to be spiritual-minded you know, and, and these sorts of things. Um, and, he, and he talks about how God has worked it in us that if we perform the actions in time, the heart will follow. And, and so just show up to worship. Yeah, he, you, you know, even if you don't want to go, just show up. Exactly. And, and your heart will follow. And, and when you start to hear the grace of Christ and, and his mercy for you, then your heart gets hungry for more. And, and, and it, it just whets the appetite. But you, you just... It's just go through the motions. If you're just going through the motions, that's okay. Just do it. You know, that's, that's really sound advice. I heard that from an Anglican priest um, who himself had struggled at one point with severe doubt. And and he was told by a superior, you know, he's saying, I'm having doubts about my faith. And as you and I both know, we live in a very, we, we're in a very precarious vocation, yeah. right? Because yes. if, if I'm a plumber or an electrician or a carpenter and a Christian, you know, if I have a crisis of faith or if I'm having problems with my church or something, I still do my work. It's right. not, a, not a problem. If you and I have a crisis of faith, doubts or we have problems with our church we're done for we're broke <laughs> we're unemployed you know we're, yeah. and and so there's like this it's it's an occupational hazard of of this particular kind of vocation but this this anglican priest uh, his superior was very wise and he simply said to him keep praying keep going to the sacrament mm. and and and, he, and the you know the cleric said said but i don't I'm not sure I even believe there's a God at the other end of those prayers is keep praying, keep yeah. going to the sacrament. And, you know, there's something about that. It's this radical trust in God to do his work in spite of ourselves, right? Yes, especially in spite of ourselves. You know, yeah, I, I, I give that advice to, to, uh, to parishioners, you know, pastor, you know, I've got doubts. 
Keep praying, keep coming to the sacrament, keep worshiping. Because the devil really rejoices. Because you know, his, his business is to drive wedges, cause divisions. And so, so he really, really rejoices when you've decided you're, you'll pray when you feel like it. Right. That's a, win, that's a win for the old evil foe right there. You'll pray when you feel like it because you'll never feel like it. And I think that this is also one of the benefits of having a liturgy. Is, is because if I worship according to my fallen heart, uh, it's, it's not going to be about Christ. It's, it's just going to be about me. And so, you know, we have the word of God in worship, in the liturgy. It, it is the word of God set to music and everything, you know, all, all of this wonder that comes with it. And it, it guards me from myself. Why? It, it, it keeps the gospel there. I think that's why our Lord gave a prayer to his yes. disciples. He didn't say, just keep on praying. He didn't say, you know, be sure to pray. Uh, but he says, when you pray, say this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, in other words, he gives them a prayer, which then becomes the bootstrap of all prayer. You, 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 there's a starting point. You're not dealing with a blank page. Start here. Pray right. this. And even if you can't pray any more than that, you've prayed it all. <laughs> so, yes, uh, it, it is... It is sufficient. <laughs> so yeah, I, I did, in honor of Eugene Peterson, I, I just grabbed a bunch of books. You named one of them, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Uh, he talks about when he was a kid, he never finished anything. I really resonated to that. He was kind of like ADD. <laughs> you know, he'd, he'd start this. He took up stamp collecting, had the greatest stamp collection there ever was. And then that just collected dust in mom's basement, moved on to the next thing. And he talked about the Christian life being exactly not that it's not a string of enthusiasms it's not a uh, a constant high it's it's a long slow obedience a faithfulness to christ in one direction and and it's not exciting it's hmm. very it's very day-to-day -day. it's mundane it's vocational and uh and and he lived that and he died that he died hmm. that i, I like uh, supposedly his last words were let's go <laughs> that's that's you know i mean that that's almost right up there with uh, uh the the gonzo um uh writer um uh, why can't i i Palaniac? can't think of anyone's name not Chuck no no Palaniac. no the, uh, oh gosh hunter thompson hunter hunter s thompson that's it he talks about how uh, at the end of life he hopes that he comes in skittering sideways and basically <laughs> laying down his bike and going, "Whoa, that was a hell of a ride!" Well, a hell of a ride. <laughs> so I pulled I pulled some some titles off the shelf here and just to jog my memory. And for me, there is a set of four. I think you can buy it as a set of four. Uh, and these are the what I would call his pastoral theologies. So you have um, five smooth stones for pastoral work. Mm, five Refer smooth stones was a good one. Yeah. Referring to, of course, uh, David uh, right. going into the river to pick up five little stones to fell Goliath. He just needed one, but five just to be, you know. Um, let's see. Working the Angles, the Shape of Pastoral Integrity. That's a very, very good book. Mm, um, I don't think I've read that one. And then the third one in that trilogy is Under the Unpredictable Plant. An exploration in vocational holiness. The uh, seed narrative is the story of Jonah, uh, mm. and he doesn't focus on the edibility of Jonah. You know, Jonah being swallowed by the big fish, but but he focuses on the second half of Jonah, where Jonah preaches and then sits on a hilltop and w waits for the destruction that never happens. Mm. And and then he's sitting in the sun and he's getting hot and he's miserable. So God causes a plant to come up to give him shade. And then God brings a worm to chew up the plant to make Jonah miserable again. But he said that's the unpredictable plant. And but it's about vocational uh, holiness. And then there's a fourth book that is not part of that series, but is part of that series. And I think you can get them as a, a gift set. Christmas is coming around. Give it to your favorite pastor, uh, the contemplative pastor. Oh, wonderful book. Uh, subtitled "Returning to the Art of Spiritual Direction." A phrase that we Lutherans are very queasy around, by the way, spiritual direction, don't want to go there. Uh, that, for me, was a lifeline. That book, uh, and a good friend of ours, Pat, uh, recommended that book to me. 
Yeah, he's the one who recommended it to me also. Yeah, and uh, you know he was he was there in my congregation early on, early, you know, very, very. Yeah, the first years in ministry are hard. It's terrifying, and uh, but he recommended that, and I remember reading that, and just it was like it was so soothing. It was it was. Uh, this great book, and Peterson wrote it on his sabbatical. He took a sabbatical late in his career and, uh, and went to the cabin in Montana, and he wrote poetry, did a lot of reading, chopped wood. He liked to work on the cabin, <laughs> chop wood. Uh, worshipped at a little Lutheran church there in Montana, which I think gives Peterson that Lutheran vibe that he has. I think he's one of right. those he's one of those hidden Lutherans that John Kleinig talked about. You know, you can find them all over the place. I think Peterson's one of them. But uh, he wrote this book, The Contemplative Pastor, and that is, if you read nothing else, read that. And even if you're not a pastor, read it, because it's about, it's about the malady of busyness. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think that is, uh, I read that in, within my first year or two of ministry, and it really helped me to understand that, you know, being busy all the time and showing up at the pastor's conferences and saying, boy, we've got this big thing going on here and now and da, 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 you know, all this, that that's not really serving your people by, by sitting around and actually chewing on the scriptures uh, and, and actually contemplating what, what is the Lord saying here? And what, what is he saying to my people? And, uh, you know, slowing down and, and just mulling over the word of God you know, you serve your people much more faithfully that way than than putting on five hundred programs. Well, and and at the same time, you take better care of yourself. Yes, because yeah. I, I think clergy health is a real issue, and I don't think that institutional solutions are really addressing the problem. You know, yeah, you can go to the camp counselor and you can do this and that and the other thing, but I don't think that they equip us from the very outset with the kind of the kind of spiritual health disciplines uh, that we need for that long haul, that long obedience in the same direction. Mm. Because I think this job, as it is uh, laid out in front of us, is destined for burnout. I think sooner or later yeah. we will... And basically, I think that's that's what happens is you kick the, you know, you kick pastors dried up. We kick them to the curb. We get a new one. We need some fresh blood and energy in here. And we're not recognizing that he is he's fried. He's gone. Yeah. And there there comes a point, you know, I just had my 20th year of ministry and, and there comes a point along the way, actually several points where you sit down to write and you say the well's just dry today. And and, uh, you know, we, we need. We need to take a break every now and then, get a, a little uh, refill, I guess you could say, so that we have more to give. We, we need to receive that we can give. And uh, it's a problem. It's a problem. You, you know, a lot of guys just end up preaching other people's sermons because they don't have anything left. Well, yeah, and that's because they haven't, they haven't inhaled. Right. They haven't, they haven't read, marked, learned, and inwardly digested in a long time. Why? Because they're too busy. They've made themselves too busy. Yeah. It's in this book, The, the Contemplative Pastor, where he talks about the naked noun. Uh, it's the first, the first chapter heading, the naked noun. And he says that adjectives are a sign of a, a noun gone weak. And so, you know, we have the administrative pastor, we have the this pastor, the that pastor, the other pastor, and the worst of all, the busy pastor. And, and he talks about um, busyness being a malady of the soul, that there's something wrong when you're busy. And uh, I, just, can I, I want to read just a, a paragraph or two about this because um, yeah, sure. this is really, this is, this is a kind of a, a, this is vintage Peterson, uh, subtitle on the chapter, The Unbusy Pastor, Much Ado About the Significant. <laughs> um, if I'm not busy making my mark in the world or doing what everyone expects me to do, what do I do? What is my proper work? What does it mean to be a pastor? If no one asked me to do anything, what would I do? Three things, and I'll just read the italic headings. I can be a pastor who prays. Mm. I want to cultivate my relationship with God. I want all of life to be intimate, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, with the God who made, directs, and loves me. And I want to awaken others to the nature and the centrality of prayer. So that's the first thing he can do. Uh, the second thing he can do is he says, I can be a pastor who listens. 
A lot of people approach me through the week to tell me what's going on in their lives. I want to have the energy and the time to really listen to them so that when they're through, they know at least one other person has had some inkling of what they're feeling and thinking. And then third, he says, I can be a pastor who preaches. I want to speak the word of God that is scripture in the language and rhythms of the people I live with. I am given an honored and protected time each week to do that. The pulpit is a great gift, and I want to use it well. Hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. That's why, you know, he's a shepherd to shepherds. He's a pastor to pastors uh, through his writings. And uh, I need to, I think, in honor him, I'm just going to reread those four books uh, Hmm. just for a little uh, spiritual reorientation. I'm looking at an article um, with a few quotes from Peterson, and and this is really, I, I think, something that pastors need to hear more often. This is from Working the Angels, uh, pages 72, 73. Angles, angles, angles. That's what I said. Uh, <laughs> How many angles can dance Working on the, the head angels. of a pen? <laughs> I'm highly educated. Yeah, you are. You're uh, an educated man. That's why, Sabbath, that's why I hate you. Sabbath keeping, quitting the internal noise so that we hear the still small voice of our Lord, removing the distractions of pride so that we discern the presence of Christ in 10,000 places, Mm. lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, uh, to the Father through features of men's faces. I I just, I love the idea of keeping Sabbath. He he talks about this a lot, of taking off a day and, and doing nothing ministerial but just just simply receive receive God's grace uh, removing all the distractions and pride that we get ourselves caught up into as pastors and uh, just contemplating on Christ and his grace for us and and just taking some time to uh, get away from ministry get away from parishioners get away from all the demands get away from all the programs and and just finding that peace at least once a week, just just kind of backing off and saying, "Okay, I'm I'm not doing today." I'm I'm looking at um, a book called "Take and Read," subtitle "Spiritual Reading: An Annotated List." Uh, this is not an easy book to find. I don't know why I have it. I think I got it from archives in Pasadena. But um, this is Eugene. That's Peter- a very dangerous place. By the way. <laughs> it's a great place. Um, you can go bankrupt. Yeah, you at can. That place. You can bust your bookshelves with that place. Uh, <laughs> these days, I'm actually going reverse. I'm giving books away to lighten my load, and so yeah. archives is the chief benefactor. Um, but this is Eugene Peterson's own annotated reading list, which is kind of fascinating. But hmm. he, at the end, he has his his own bibliography, at least up until. Uh, the the writing of this book, which would be 1996. So there's a lot more that came later. But here's what he says about the contemplative pastor. This is the author speaking about his own work. My conviction is that the pastor must refuse to be shaped by the culture, whether secular or ecclesiastical, and insist on becoming a person of prayer in the community of worship. This is our assigned task. Anything less or other is malpractice. Mm. (laughs) That's, uh, that's, boy, that's, that's well said. You know, refuse to be shaped by the culture. And that means not only accommodating the culture, but engaging in warfare with the culture. Because when you do that, you'll be shaped by the, you become your enemy, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so, yeah. so he, in, in some ways, that's his contemplative side showing through. He is, he is above the fray. He's the, he's the, the quiet man outside praying. And uh, boy, that's so unlike me. Uh, it, it, but yeah, uh, well, that's that's what I was thinking. Not not about you necessarily, but me. Well, yeah, it's okay. You can think but, about uh, me too. Well, I think that way about you. Also. I'm reminded, paging through this book, that he loves Charles Williams. Uh, Don't know who that is. Is a, 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 a fiction writer. Okay. And uh, I know that Kenneth Corby. Another one of my fathers in the faith loved Charles Williams. He you was, know, that's that's one thing that Peterson. I, I heard an interview that he did recently. I just revisited a bunch of old stuff, and he was saying it's important for pastors to read novels. Yes, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, he was big on that. He loved Dostoevsky. 
Mm. And if you've ever tried reading Dostoevsky, boy, that's that's some heavy sledding. I'm not a big fiction reader, and for that reason, I, I, I suffer uh, sometimes in my the way in which I'm attuned to language. Um, because, you know, I mean, the art of interpreting scripture is really the art of literature. And I'm not a literature major. You know, I'm a science major. So I tend to approach these things in this analytical sort of way. Um, Peterson was helpful in in sort of recovering the literary sense of these things. And that phrase, that, that quote that you had, I mean, that is a beautiful turn of phrase right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he did this without being overly erudite. It's not like he talked over the heads of his people no. in the pulpit. But he respected the language. Yeah, he loved Dostoevsky. He loved Charles Williams. Uh, looking to see who else uh, was influential for him. Uh, likes the contemplatives very, very much. And again, that's something that's not normally on our reading list. He liked poetry. Uh, it, he wrote poetry. His poetry is quite good. In fact, his poetry inspired uh, me to write poetic stuff, uh, especially for Christmas Eve. Instead of doing sermons, I would write these little poetic prose things. I know mm. he liked Eliot and Auden a lot. Um, Auden's Christmas Oratorio. He says, I read this every Advent and I let Auden's imagination stretch my own to make connections between Bethlehem and Bel Air, Maryland, the town in which I lived for 30 <laughs> years. Um, beautiful, beautiful. You know, I think it's in the contemplative pastor where he says, I have a friend who um, has a very large Presbyterian church, 5,000 members, you know, and he's considered a raging success by the church body you know he's he's the golden sure. boy yeah and you know every church body has their golden boy um and and he but he says and i'm thankful for him i said he says he has tremendous administrative skills and and he manages to keeps all the plates spinning at this this huge operation and he says and i thank god i'm not there because <laughs> because he said i never wanted to be pastor of a congregation uh, who's so large that I can't know the name of every member. Right. And right. That that that's that speaks right to his heart. That he is he he's he's the pastor of the small congregation. Well, and I think that that also I, I do remember that as well. Uh, him talking about that sort of thing, and that's one of the things that informed me as a pastor the difference between being a preacher and administrator and a pastor. Um, you can be a great preacher and have 5,000 members, and you can be a great administrator and have 5,000 members, but how do you serve 5,000 members as a pastor when you don't even know these people? And and that's that's a huge distinction there because I'm not being a, a, a big success in the eyes of the church as a whole or in the culture because I'm serving a church of 250 people, um, but when someone goes to the hospital, I come running. And and this is what I'm called to do is is to serve as a pastor, not just not just preach on Sundays and, and not just put on good programs. And, well, and there's the, the that's kind of on, a unique, you know, different thing. The putting on good programs is is a, a very enticing temptation. That that's a little bit on the line of uh, you know, you can have all this if you bow down and worship me sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I think you, you you go to the heart of that. Here's an oft-overlooked book, um, and that's called Subversive Spirituality. Mm. I, I think it first came out in 1994, reprinted 1997. Uh, and this is a kind of a collection of things. I, I It's not about one thing, but it's it's a series of what I would call articles and essays. Yeah, these are articles published elsewhere, like Christianity Today. He was a frequent contributor. Mm -hmm. But it has um, some of his poetry uh, in the back, too, and then pastoral readings. So it's a collection of readings. It's a little bit like a Peterson reader. And uh, so I would really recommend this to people who have not read any Eugene Peterson, want to get kind of a real feel for the, the depth of the man's uh, spirituality and writing, is subversive spirituality. Uh, that's, I think that's a good one. I, I want to read a, uh, uh, just the first, the first poem called Holy Luck. Okay. 
And uh, I like that because Capon talks about luck used to be holy till the gamblers got a hold of it. <laughs> uh, but holy luck, this is this is his poetic interpretation or his poetic commentary on the Beatitudes uh, that were originally published in Theology Today, 1987. Uh, and he makes note, he says, the word lucky has a bad odor among some people. Um, but uh, there's a reminder that makarios, sometimes translated happy, we say blessed. Uh, but there was a notion in the Bible, especially like in the book of Esther, that God hid himself behind happenstance, behind luck. It just so happened, right? How'd they choose the, how'd they choose the, uh, the apostle to take Judas's place? Casting lots. Yeah, rock, paper, scissors. So, you know, <laughs> how do they make decisions in the Old Testament? Urim and Thummim, you know, just roll the dice, baby. Pray and roll the dice. That's God's will. So this is called the lucky poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so these are the words of Peterson. A beech tree in winter, white intricacies unconcealed against sky blue and billowed clouds, carries in his emptiness ripeness. Sap ready to rise on signal, buds alert to burst to leaf. And then after a season of summer, a lean ring to remember, the lush fulfilled promises, empty again in wise poverty that lets the reaching branches stretch a millimeter more towards heaven. The bowl expand ever so slightly and push roots into the firm foundation, lucky to be leafless, Deciduous reminder to let it go. <laughs> Deciduous reminder to let it go. I've got a quote from the same book here. Uh, we do not progress in the Christian life by becoming more competent, more knowledgeable, more virtuous, or more energetic. We do not advance in the Christian life by acquiring expertise. Each day and many times a day, we return to square one. God said, we adore, and we listen. It, just that returning to God's word. Yeah, he was, he, was, he was a true hearer of the word. Yeah. And, you know, and this you know, is something as an extrovert that's very hard for me. Because <laughs> I've got to make listen. noise. I've got you know, to be with people. i got to, you know, it's like, no, hey, just shut up. It's, just hard, it's hard for us talkative introverts, too, believe me, just to shut up and listen. Yeah, I, you know, that's, I'll fall asleep if I do that. I love that because because the Sabbath day, the seventh day, the holy day, is a day of silence in Genesis because God doesn't mm. say anything. He doesn't say, let there be rest or let there be Sabbath. It doesn't even begin with, and God said, all the other days do, that one doesn't. So it's kind of interesting. How does God rest? He's silent. How do we rest? Shut up. Mm. Listen. You know, do not despise preaching in the word, but, but be quiet. Yeah. And listen. Is it like he says here, we return to square one, God said, we adore, and we listen. I think he and Marva Dawn uh, collaborated on a book called Keeping the Sabbath Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Um, of course, you know, Lutherans will rush in to point out that there is no Sabbath in their New Testament, but they miss the point. That's not the point. <laughs> it's not reestablishing re the Sabbath day. But it's about the gift of rest. And the gift of quiet and the gift of silence. Um, that the true be still and know that I'm God. It doesn't mean listen for the still small voice. It means stop what you're doing. Knock off the busyness. You know, the nations are in turmoil and the kingdoms rage. Shut up. <laughs> and, and Peterson wasn't a strict Sabbatarian or anything like that, was he? No, 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 no. I didn't think so. No, no. But, but, but you, the minute you bring that up, even though it's in our catechism, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The right. minute you bring that up, you have to get all the qualifiers in. And that's fine. That's right. It's true. The, you know, it's not the seventh day or we'd all be Seventh-day Adventists. And it's not Sunday because there is no commandment. But having said all the negatives, the positive is if we don't rest in the word, we will have no rest, period. Mm -hmm. And if we don't stop our work, then our work is not hallowed. Uh, there's the you know there's all kinds of ways we can talk about that. I want to talk about what I a very um, unsung book that I think is a gem, and that's his little devotion. He calls it devotional exegesis. So he doesn't quote Greek and he doesn't cite a bazillion biblical scholars, though he knows them. As a book called Reversed Thunder, 
I never even heard of that one. Yeah, yeah, it's a tiny little paperback book. Uh, you can still, I think it's still is readily accessible. Reverse Thunder. It is, in my estimation, the finest, and I, I mean this seriously, the finest devotional commentary on the Book of Revelation. Hmm. Nothing like it, and he nails it. He totally nails the Revelation. And he does it without getting technical and going into all, you know, there's plenty of historical technical stuff you can deal with in Revelation, but he captures what the Revelation is about and uh, the way a preacher would, you know. That's what preachers do. They, they take texts and preach them into the context of their hearers. And that's exactly what he does with it. So I think he does it around the theme, if I remember correctly, of these are Christ's last words, the last words to the church, the last words on worship, the last words on politics, the last words on government, the last words on this, that, the other thing. And he just, and, and he's got it. He, he has the revelation nailed. So if you really want to read something edifying, um, that doesn't go off into millennial weirdness and stuff. Uh, reverse thunder. I'll have to get that one. Um, he, uh, I, I, I read something about him on the book of Revelation, and he, he mentions that in, I think, the 404 verses in the book of Revelation. Uh, but he makes the point that, that other scriptures are mentioned over 500 times without actually quoting one. <laughs> or something like that, which is kind of interesting. That he'd, he'd pick up on that, yeah, yeah, and and so you kind of get this. I think you know, as as we look at one of his least successful theologically books, uh, but probably financially most successful is is his. Uh, I don't know if you call it translation, paraphrase of the Bible, whatever the message. Um, you know, here he he kind of approaches this with as as you would say a, a pastoral. A voice, a preaching voice, or or something—not a literal translation—and uh, it fails on on many levels. But it's also worthy of of consideration on many levels, also at the same time. Yeah, that's that one. I have, I am, I'm very ambivalent about. Yeah. Um, while he was working on it, I acquired a few of the individual books out of curiosity. So I have on my shelf the Psalms. And I also have the Proverbs. And then I also have, and I don't know why I have it or how I got it, but I have a, basically a daily reader from the message. Mm. So it's basically one of those, you know how you have those day-by-day -day reading kind of things? So this is right. daily readings from the message. Uh, that's taken from all over. And so I, you know, I have a good idea of what the, what the tone of it is. And I'm, I, I'm very... This is a bothersome work uh, because it's really not a translation. No, it's not. Uh, it's it's and it's barely a paraphrase. What I would call it would be a a pulpit paraphrase or a preacher's paraphrase. He's, right. He's doing in print what we all what we all do as preachers is that we take the text of scripture and we speak it into the context of our hearers. Uh, you you try to you what you want is you want the hearer to identify with the text. You want the text to impact the hearer as law and gospel. So, uh, you know, he, he does that. But unfortunately, the book is marketed as a translation of the Bible. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. It really it, is. It's received as a translation of the Bible. Yeah. You know, Bono talks about, oh, we read from the message before we got out on stage and it gave us strength. And also, Peterson, in, in some of his later uh, books, quotes from the message as though it were scriptures. So mm. even he endorses that. And See, I never really knew where he saw that, if he saw that as a translation or just kind of devotional writing or what. I don't know either, but I was bothered to find that that when he was writing, you know, most of his books begin with some kind of scripture narrative that that he he rarely just kind of launches into the topic. He usually begins with, with a story, with a narrative from the scriptures. And I was disappointed that that he basically viewed his the message as as an authoritative place to begin. That mm. that I think is kind of kind of a miss. But uh, that said, I have used the Psalms and the Proverbs with one of my Bible classes, not as primary text but as right. commentary, because there are times when he really nails it. He yeah, really I kind of, gets it. I kind of throw it in the category of like Saint Augustine's Confessions. 
where you're reading one page and you go, wow, this is really good. And you turn to the next page, you're like, yeah, no, not that. You know? <laughs> so it, it's like I was saying, it's worthy of consideration, I think, but not something that I think should be used as a as an actual text of scripture. But, uh, you know, it's always good to get other viewpoints and, well, and to just kind of hear other people's thoughts on, on the passages. And I think that's that's the value in the message is hearing someone else's viewpoint on it. I, I remember, you know, here's the problem I think that we have as Lutherans with this is that we know only two ways of reading the Bible. Uh, one is analytically. I, I, do you remember the days at the seminary where you sat at the big table and you really weren't doing the hard work unless there were 20 books open in front of you and, you know, you, ba- you barely, you had to stand to see everything. So you had... Yeah, you've got your Kittle on one side. You've got your Kittle, you've got, yeah, you got your commentaries, kind of, you have your your, your, your concordance. G-H-I-J-K. Yeah, all this, yeah. you know, but you were just basically immersed in, and what's the purpose of that? Well, the purpose of that is to to get as, as, as close a handle on the text as you possibly can, literally to be like an original hearer of the text. It also serves the purpose of slowing you down because there's nothing slower than that kind of reading, but it's important. Um, the other kind of reading that we do is dogmatic reading. So we kind of, it's like strip mining. You kind of go through the scriptures and you're looking for those nuggets of proof passages that prove this doctrine or that can be used to support that teaching. However, so it's, it's kind of looking looking for useful passages. The one thing we don't do is devotional reading. Mm. That is to just sit and listen, to absorb the narrative, to think about it, to become kind of part of that story and to to ask the 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 question is, you know, what what's God saying to me here? Why 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 did the Holy Spirit even include this thing, you know? And and it's just really to hear the story because I think the telling and the hearing of the story is formative of community. That's that's how the church is formed. Uh you know, faith cometh by hearing. And so so it's it's in the hearing of the proclamation of Christ that the church is is formed and and I think we've kind of lost that a little bit because we're we're very busy analyzing dissecting or dogmatizing and uh, Corby always talked about uh Bible reading and to have a a plan of Bible reading and he says he say something like if you have more than one book open and it's not the Bible you're not actually reading the Bible <laughs> you know, you're you're reading somebody else's thoughts about the Bible. They may be edifying. Who knows? But Luther, you know, but you're not reading the Bible. Reading the book, mm. and even a study Bible can be a distraction because you read the footnotes, you read the cross references, you read everything but the text. <laughs> and there's a problem with that. And I think Peterson was a man who really wanted to get back to the text, and so he'd write these devotional commentaries, and. The message. The message, I think, was an attempt of one man to paraphrase the entire Bible. Hey, that's quite an achievement. I can't really claim that I regularly have read the entire Bible. This man has touched on every verse and paraphrased it. Yeah, you know, we got to think about that, right? Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's quite a quite a thing to do. But uh... I got one more little nugget on the Peterson thing. Then I think we probably have run out of time. Uh, this is another. Um, this is a book that that probably isn't well known. Uh, it's called "The Wisdom of Each Other," and uh, looking for the Zundervan, nineteen ninety eight. Zundervan, nineteen ninety eight. And what this is um, is these are these are letters uh, between him and a friend. Hmm. And yes, a friend struggling with faith, struggling with, you know, all kinds of things. And, and um, of all the books of Peterson, uh, this one goes to the pastoral heart. And, and, and I think it's really, really, really cool. Uh, and it's, it's I, I don't know how, it's been a long time since I've read it, but I don't know whether these are accurate letters or they've been kind of, changed a little bit, uh, you know, just to make them into a book. But there are letters between a guy named Gunner, 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 however you say his name, you know, one of those Minnesotan names, and and Eugene. And uh, and so very, very cool. But these these are the letters of a pastor to a friend about spiritual matters, about everything, about life. 
And uh, I think it's kind of a really good example of what Peterson means when he talks about spiritual direction. You know, we talk about pastoral care, but there's such thing as spiritual direction. The closest that I can think of in our Lutheran tradition would be uh, in the small called articles, the mutual conversation and consolation of the brethren. That is our, Mm. our Christian conversations with each other. So that's kind of what this book is. And so I, I, I kind of recommend it if you want. Light reading, very small book, kind of cool, but, but um, conversations between two believers just struggling along that way. So very cool. Do you, do you have a, a reading that you were going to oh, do there? I could. Let me see. <laughs> I thought you were. I was. Thought you were getting ramped up to actually read something. Okay, so I'm. I just arbitrarily opened this, so there's no agenda here. Page ah. page forty two, and I'm just going to read Peterson's um, response. Me and give my understanding. <laughs> I cannot talk to you. No, that's not it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Craig. So, yes. dear Gunner, you do insist on using this word spiritual, don't you? Overusing, I'd say. We have very different feelings about this word. You obviously like it a lot more than I do. I wonder if it isn't because of the quite different worlds that we've been living in. You, in a very secularized world, laboratories and instruments and computers and scientific reports, and I in the world of religion, prayer, worship, funerals, baptisms. Your world has been pretty totally defined by the rational and technological, and while that held great attraction for you for a long time, you ended up feeling stifled, reduced to explanations and techniques. You wrote me once that you felt that all of life had been squeezed out of you by the know-it-alls and the do-it-alls. You longed for breathing room, and so every time you heard the word spiritual, regardless of context, you caught an intimation of life and breath, a witness to the reality of the innerness that you miss so much. And then you returned to the Christian way and found those witnesses confirmed in the Holy Spirit, more innerness than you ever thought possible. So, of course, you like the word spiritual. For you, the word served as a distant flare on the horizon during your long trek through the murk and gloom of reductionist rationalism and technology. And now that the day spring from on high has appeared for you, you remember the flares with fondness. I can understand that. For me... The word has very different associations. My world is, has been defined by the Trinity, God the Father, revealed in Jesus the Son by the Holy Spirit. Spirit is God's spirit, bringing God's life. Unlike you, who felt constricted and reduced, I have felt invited into largeness and openness. Whereas you associated primarily with people who took on life as a problem to be solved, I have cultivated company with those who enter it as a mystery to be explored. But in this company, unfortunately, there are also numerous men and women who want the vitality and ecstasy of spirit without dealing with the Holy Spirit who reveals God in Jesus. These are the ones who are forever talking about being spiritual and how to be more spiritual. Spirituality then becomes an elitist activity, a kind of snobbish Christian (laughs) subculture with its own gurus and lore. And do you know what the end of that, uh, do you know what they end up doing? Hmm. Hauling in truckloads of rationalism and technology from the world you have so recently abandoned in order to be more spiritual. No more (laughs) mystery. And only as much of God as they think they need to legitimize their spiritual self-ism. Can you understand why I get a little tired of the word spiritual? I think I may be onto something here. Why, Why you like the word and why I tend to avoid it. What do you think? The peace of the Lord. Eugene. (laughs) <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> I think we'll let uh, Peterson have the last word on spirituality for us on this GW. Yeah, what do you think? I, I'm. I think that's a good place to call it quits for the day. Hey, I've enjoyed. I've enjoyed talking about about this this man and his work and um, and highlighting a few of the ones that meant something to us. Um, time, I think, to reread Peterson in these gray and latter days. So, uh, thanks uh, for listening. You can. Find us on Facebook and like us because Craig really needs to be liked. I need to be loved. Love (laughs) me. Love us on Facebook. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher and all the podcast feeds. Uh, You can find the entire body of our work, The God Whispers, at godwhispers.org. And, of course, you can 
email us with your questions, your comments, your love at godwhispers at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening. Until next time. Oh, I jumped on that one. (laughs) Yes, you did. Thank <laughs> you.